This episode contains disturbing content, including mention of sexual assault, illicit drug use, and explicit language. Please take care while listening. Rose Stahl believed her therapist, Chris Batham, was an ethical man. Then he told her of his plan to have Cliff Brodsky murdered. Rose couldn't get that conversation out of her head. Was he serious? Could it have been a dark joke? She decided to confront him. I was like, hey man, uh, like, do you uh, remember that conversation that we had about Brodsky, you know? And and uh, he's like, yeah. And I was like, maybe, uh, maybe that murder talk, like, maybe that's, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. And I'm keeping it light and kind of ditzy and cute. Like, I'm like, I don't know what, I'm just like, ha, 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 ha. Because I'm fucking, I don't know, how do you have this conversation with your therapist slash boss? I don't know what I expected, but I did not expect his reaction. His reaction was just a boom. And he was like pointing at me and he was stern. He was like, do not put your damage, shame, bullshit onto me. And Had you ever seen that side of him before? Had you ever seen that anger? No, I had never... I'd never seen him actually mad, ever. And it was just as shocking. His anger at me was almost more shocking than the fact in the moment that he was serious about having this guy murdered. Chris said he'd helped so many people turn their lives around that having one person murdered wasn't that big of a deal. He was like, my scale of like doing good is so heavy that having Cliff Brodsky murdered is not going to tip it. Rose could no longer quiet her suspicions. Over the next months, she would start to think about all the rumors she'd heard of insurance fraud, of drug use, of sexual assault. What if it was all true? She'd begin to turn against Chris Batham and look for ways to report him. She had heard him threaten to murder someone, but was that enough? Was that proof of anything? So there was that. But I still need more, you know? It's like, that's not enough to, like, go to the FBI. Chris Batham's lack of concern for Cliff Brodsky's life, for human life, hit Rose particularly hard because of something that happened one month prior. Rose had a dream one night. In her dream, a client died. I texted Batham. It was like a Sunday. I woke up the next morning and I was like, I had this dream that a client died last night. Rose said Chris made a joke in response, something like, maybe a client did die, wouldn't that be your dream come true? It was a pun, I guess, a weird, dark joke that was characteristic of Chris Batham. But then, a few days later, Rose got the news that a client actually had died. Someone she knew, a friend of hers. Wednesday morning, we get the news that Mo had been found dead in his, in his, uh, friend's car. And then, you know, we get, we find out that he had died that Sunday night that I'd had that dream. So weird. So weird. And that was, uh, devastating for everyone. I mean, he had been sitting in this car dead for three days. We were just like, how did that happen? How did nobody check or just super weird? There were a lot of unsettling and suspicious aspects to this client's death, things that just didn't make sense. Rose would begin to wonder what had really happened. Had Chris Batham been involved somehow? 
From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. This is Season 4, Episode 3, Chris Batham, Rumors. I'm Hannah Smith. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Mo Barakat died of a drug overdose in January of 2015. He was found in a parked car outside the gate of the CRLA Cold Canyon Sober Living House in Calabasas. Mo had been a client at CRLA for over a year, although technically he wasn't a client when he died. He had been kicked out a few days before. He was a young kid. I think he was 24, 23. He was just like real... He was just kind of a little wild, but he wanted to be there, you know. Staff would get frustrated with him at times, but he was very beloved. Rose had witnessed Moe's recovery, which was a bit rocky. He had relapsed a couple times, but had always committed himself again to get sober. But Rose said the month leading up to his death was different. First of all, he was promoted to client staff and given a job that seemed irresponsible and inappropriate. And so I had been told that he had been given a job as, like, a tech in a woman's house right before he relapsed. And I was just, like, one of those, like, where we were like, this feels like a weird conspiracy, but, like, what the fuck? Like, did Batham want him to relapse? Mo got caught having sex with one of the female clients, which is against CRLA policy. But Rose says this wasn't a surprise to anyone. Mo had some issues with sex addiction. The fact that he was given this job in a house full of women felt so negligent to Rose that it was suspicious, as if whoever gave him that job was setting him up for something. We put like a borderline sex addict in charge of women. The how the like super weird. And then when he behaves the way that any reasonable person would expect him to behave, um, the punishment that he was doled out was just so severe. You know, because it was another one of those, what a fucking piece of shit, what a fucking piece of shit, you know, that fucking piece of shit, that kind of, like, talk. Shortly after Mo was caught sleeping with a CRLA client, he relapsed, failed a drug test, and was kicked out of CRLA. CRLA required all clients to maintain their sobriety. Any drug or alcohol use at CRLA was a danger to all the other clients. So from the outside, it looked like Chris Batham had followed protocol by kicking Mo out. But Rose wasn't sure that was the whole story. You could tell Batham was, like, mad at him. The rumor is that Mo knew what Batham was up to. And Mo was kind of hooking up, still hooking up with one of the girls. And... He went to go meet up with her because she was at a hotel. And as he was leaving, spending time with her, he ran into Batham. The rumor went, Mo ran into Chris at a hotel and discovered that Chris was there with a female client. So none of this is verified. 
Mo kind of confronted him in Bath and just to shut him up, kind of gave him some drugs. And those were the drugs that he overdosed on. He was a benzo user. He didn't really do opiates ever. And uh, it was opiates that he died from. The benzos were in his pocket, but there was no opiate in his pocket when he was found dead. So, I mean, that's like a less... The implication was that Batham had wanted him to overdose. I spoke with Rebecca Arvizu. She's an attorney in Los Angeles, and her son was a client at CRLA at the same time as Mo. They were friends. Rebecca doesn't want me to use her son's name, but she says that he was deeply affected by Mo's death. He would work with Mo. He said he did some jobs with Mo around the facility, and Mo talked about how Chris would give him access to the medication walker if he did certain jobs for him. And so Mo had, so they knew he was using. So your son told you that Mo told him that if Mo did certain things for Chris, you know, he would be rewarded with drugs or access to the medication locker? Yeah, my son didn't see that, but he suspected it, especially after talking to Mo and some of the other guys. And then he was banished and then he couldn't come back and then he was found, you know, outside. Although CRLA required clients to be drug tested regularly, Chris Batham had the power to exempt people from those tests. In theory, Chris could have been giving Mo drugs while he was still a client at CRLA and excluding Mo from the regular drug tests. And then all Chris would have had to do to get Mo kicked out would be to have him drug tested. Rebecca told me one more thing she'd heard. I remember my son saying, well, he knew about the girls. He knew about the girls and look what happened to him. He does not want want to talk about it, though. Whenever I try to talk to him about it, he he really, he just shuts down. He knew about the girls. What if the rumors were true? What if Chris Batham gave Mo drugs? Did Mo know something that he wasn't supposed to know? I can't get the story about Mo out of my head. There's so much that doesn't add up. It's hard for me to believe that he was dead in his friend's car for days, parked right outside the Cold Canyon sober living house, and no one thought to check the car. I had a lot more questions about this, and so I contacted Mo's family. It's been seven years since Mo died. His mother told me that for the first few years, she was just too sad to talk about her son's death. Her decision to speak out now is partially motivated by the hope that it will bring justice to her son. She did not want her name used, so we will refer to her as Mo's mother. He was, he was a really nice kid. I love Muhammad so much, and I was desperate to help him in any way I can. Mo is short for Muhammad. Most parents immigrated to the U.S. before he was born, and they are Muslim. This never seemed to be a problem, though. Mo grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, a typical American kid. He loved the rapper Eminem, and he wanted to make music himself someday. But then September 11th happened, and everything changed for him. He keeps, like, you know, complaining to me, told me, Mom, you know, 
um, I got in a problem with kids because of my name, Mohammed, especially after September 11. And I keep getting in some issues with kids and, you know, with teachers and he got into fights. And so he told me, mom, I'm really facing a lot of problems. Mo was bullied. He was getting into fights and having problems with teachers. And then he just stopped going to school, calling in sick most days. He developed a Xanax habit, and his drug use escalated from there. My daughters, and they told me, Mom, I think Mohammed's doing drugs, and this problem is going to be worse. After going to a correctional boarding school, then a private school, Mo got his high school diploma. He decided to study music at the Los Angeles Recording School. At first, it seemed like he was going to be okay. But then he started using drugs again. And eventually, he got kicked out from the school. And he, he went, he was in jail in and out for like, you know, a few days, then get out, bail him out. Then at the end, he got a, a court order that he has to go to a rehab for 12 months residential treatment. At the time, Mo's father owned a liquor store, and one of his customers happened to work at CRLA. He introduced Mo's parents to Chris Batham. Mo didn't have insurance, and his parents couldn't pay out of pocket. But Chris Batham offered Mo a scholarship. He could go to CRLA for free. So it was in November 2013, that's when he started there. And I saw Muhammad was so improving quickly, like he was doing so good. Different look. You know, he used to be skinny. We see him start gaining weight, looking healthy. Uh, so we're happy. We all, all the family, we were impressed. Like, you know, how this treatment center could change Muhammad like that and quickly. So we all, we, we all believe it. We trusted Chris Batham. So unbelievable. We thought like he's a miracle, like to change our son like this. The difference was visible. Mo was getting healthier. And his parents credited Chris Batham for that. There were a few times over the course of his first year at CRLA in which Mo relapsed. But he was allowed to stay and keep working toward sobriety. Then, in the fall of 2014, Chris made this decision that seemed really strange to Mo's mother. Chris wanted Mo's family to come in every single week for personalized therapy with Chris Batham. So I was like, you know, weirded out. Why just with a family? Then I talked to my daughters and my husband. They said, you just listen to him. Let's do whatever he asks us to do. He's helping our son and he's not taking any money from us. Let's do whatever it takes. So we start attending this meeting. Mo's mother told me that Chris's advice throughout those therapy sessions was strange and uncomfortable. Mo's younger sister was in college at the time studying business, and Chris did a one-on-one therapy session with her. He offered her a loan to start her own business. She declined. Then Chris focused on Mo's mother. He insisted that Mo's mother should move out of the family house and into an apartment of her own. This was his therapeutic advice. He told her that she was the reason Mo was doing drugs and that she had to leave the house. I said, no, I'm not moving from my house. Why do you want me to move out? He told me, you are the reason for him doing drugs. He's taking advantage of you. He kept telling, convincing me that, like you are, you are, you have to move out. Well, I told him, no, I'm not going to move out from my house. Mo's mother isn't sure why Chris was so focused on her moving out of the family house, but she wasn't going to do it. 
She worried that because she had refused to do what Chris asked, that Mo might be kicked out of CRLA as a result. And she was right. Within a week of her telling Chris that she wouldn't move out of the house, she got a call. Mo had been kicked out of CRLA for using drugs. They told her where they would be dropping Mo off in case she wanted to pick him up. Uh, Mohammed was on drugs. Um, then my husband and I, we were talking and said, oh, we have to listen to Chris Batham. He told us if they ever kicked him out, we can't bring him back in to our house. During those family therapy sessions, Chris Batham had made Mo's entire family swear that if Mo ever relapsed, they would not let him back into the house. Mo even agreed to that at the time. Even though Mo's family was beginning to be suspicious of Chris Batham at that point, there was still a lingering feeling that Chris was this genius therapist who knew best. So they decided to take his advice, and they didn't let Mo come back. Just leave him there. Let's see what he's going to do. He has no money. He has nothing. What's the worst could happen? How is he going to get drugs? Then that night we left him there. And I think Chris Batham, he knew that Mohammed is going to call him. He's going to ask him for help. And I think that's what my, my son does. He called Chris. Much later, Mo's mother would learn that a CRLA client went and picked Mo up in his car. But she didn't know that at the time. In fact, she had no idea where Mo was. Typically, she spoke with him on the phone every day. So when she wasn't able to get in contact with him for more than 24 hours, she knew something was wrong. She called CRLA and she told them Mo was missing. They insisted he was not at CRLA. Mo's parents drove around the city looking everywhere they could for him. So we're going to the places where Mohammed used to hang out on. Okay, then we went to the police station and... um, Calabasas, I think, to file a missing person report. Said, we know, our son been missing for more than 24 hours. By Monday, Mo's mother was inconsolable. She kept calling CRLA. She said she felt that someone there knew something about her son. Guys, he stopped by, you know something. I know from their voice, it's like they're sad. Oh, we don't know, really. If we hear something, we're going to let you know. And around that time when I called them, he was crying, crying all the time, because I know I'm going to hear that they found his body. Mo's mother believed then, and still believes now, that the people she spoke to at CRLA were not honest with her. They knew something about Mo. So... I kept calling, calling, like I was annoying them. I need to know where is my son. Finally, a staff member called her crying and told her they had found Mo's body in a car outside of the facility. Mo's mother told me that this is the story CRLA relayed to her. After Mo was kicked out, he contacted a client named Gabe. Gabe went and picked up Mo and brought him back to CRLA to the sober living house in Calabasas where Mo had previously lived. But Mo wasn't allowed back inside. So instead, Gabe let Mo stay in his car until he could find a more permanent place to live. A few days went by, and then Gabe went to check on his car or get something from his car. That part isn't totally clear. And he found Mo dead. Did you believe their story, or did you believe that it happened how they said? No. Definitely not. I said, it must be Mohammed took something strong to kill him. 
and he won't stay in the car till he die. I know my son, he will go out, go look for more drugs. And who would give him a drug like that to kill him? Where did they get that drug? A lot of questions in our mind. And why would he die when he go back to the rehab? There is a story. Um, We couldn't believe it like that. Mo's mother shared his autopsy report with me. Mo had lethal amounts of two different opioids in his body, Oxycontin and a drug called Opana, along with Xanax and an antidepressant. The opioids were suspicious to his mother, just as they had been to Rose. It wasn't Mo's typical choice of drug. Just as Rose and Rebecca told me, Mo's mother also believes that Mo knew something about Chris. Shortly before he died, he had told his mother and sisters not to trust Chris Batham. This is Mo's mother's theory about what happened. She thinks that after Mo was kicked out of Sierra LA, when he had nowhere else to go, he called Chris Batham and threatened him that if Chris didn't let him back into Sierra LA or maybe give him drugs, that Mo would speak out about what he knew about Chris. Then she thinks Chris let Mo back into Sierra LA gave him the drugs he overdosed on, and then moved his body to the car and parked it outside the property of Sierra LA so as not to be investigated for the death. Of course, this is just a theory. We think that my son passed away in the facility. I believe, like, someone gave him this drug, and he passed away inside, and probably Chris was scared, said, don't call police or 911 or anything, or we all going to be in jail, so let's put his body back in the car. That's from our imagination, okay? We thought like that, but God knows the fact. Mo's mother holds out hope that someday her son's death will be investigated. But what she needs for that to happen is for someone to come forward with something more than a rumor or a theory— After Mo died, his mother received a lot of phone calls from clients and staff at CRLA. She says it was as if they felt guilty. It was as if they knew something. Till now, it's been seven years. I need to know what happened just for me, for me to to relax and make me feel like better knowing what happened. And still like this is a mystery. Still thinking, oh, probably this and that. I need to know what's... Because, you know, I know the people who work there or who attended the rehab, they know the fact. I know they know the truth, what happened. Why? What made me say that? Because they contacted me. They said, okay, you know, could be something happened like that. They, They saw something. It's not just like they're thinking that what happened. I believe they saw something. They saw my son dying there. But I need to know the fact. How did he die? What happened that time? And why my son was dead two days? And they know that he was dead. He was in the car. And we didn't know about it. Mo's death was never investigated. His body was found outside the property of CRLA, and he wasn't technically a client when he died. To an outsider, Mo was just another person struggling with addiction who relapsed, overdosed, and died. It happens all the time. I spoke with one more person about Mo's death, a former employee at CRLA who knew him. We didn't record the conversation, and I won't share her name, but I'll tell you what we talked about. 
First of all, she was working at the Cold Canyon Sober Living Facility, which means she was coming and going every day. She said there is absolutely no way that a car could have been parked right outside the gate for days without anyone noticing. CRLA had actually made a policy that clients and staff couldn't park their cars outside the gate because neighbors were complaining. I told her the theory about Mo dying inside the premises of CRLA and then his body being moved. She had no idea if this was true. But she did say having a dead client on site would be very bad for Chris Batham and CRLA. It most likely would have prompted an investigation. She also told me right after Mo's body was found, she heard Chris Batham tell Kirsten Wallace, write Mo's parents a check. Mo's mother confirmed that Chris Batham did give them a check to cover Mo's funeral expenses. I truly don't think that this person, or anyone else I spoke to for that matter, knows what happened to Mo. But if you have any information about the death of Mohammed Barakat, you can contact the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The more I dig into this story, the more surprised I am by how many things Chris Batham got away with, by how he was able to talk his way out of things. He was surrounded by people, but for whatever reason, he was able to keep them quiet. Beyond the rumors of negligence, of sexual assault, and of him giving clients drugs, there were also a lot of rumors of insurance fraud. I wanted to talk with someone who worked in the insurance department at CRLA. And then in late 2021, I got a text from a woman named Jill. Jill hasn't shared publicly about her story until recently, but she agreed to speak with me. So I drove to Venice to meet her at her apartment. Hi, my name is Jill. I am from Los Angeles. In 2012, Jill was in her mid-30s. She had survived cancer, but developed a pill addiction that took over her life. I ended up being pretty much left on my own. My family was gone and I had nowhere to go. Jill checked into CRLA when she had no other options. She remembers filling out the intake paperwork. You know, I was so broken and beaten down and just hopeless at that point that I didn't care what I was signing. I wasn't even listening, to be honest. Like, I just signed everything. I didn't even care. When Jill arrived at CRLA, she had to hand over her social security card, her ID, and sign a bunch of waivers. It was a surprise to her, two months later, to find out that CRLA had signed her up for insurance. Jill saw it as a good thing. Not only was she getting sober, now she had insurance. By the summer of 2013, Jill was hired as a full-time staff member working in the billing department, She was offered a very generous salary, more money than she'd ever made in her life, legally anyway. She never worked in insurance or billing, but she's smart and resourceful, and so she figured it out. But a few months in, she started to notice something strange. They were billing the insurance companies for the facility billing for like $2,000 a day and getting paid. And then also 
filling from a different NPI number under Los Angeles Family Institute instead of Community Recovery Los Angeles with a different tax ID, different MPI with professional billing. So we were double billing. So like one client, you would they were billing twice. Right. We we're billing person. we're billing all inclusive and then we're also billing for each individual group and everything for every day. Professional billing is for services like therapy. Facility billing is for all-inclusive live-in treatment. Jill noticed that CRLA was billing twice for the same treatment, once under facility and then again with professional, but using different MPI numbers and under different LLCs. He has this way of taking a pen and a whiteboard and talking in circles until you swear you believe him that the sky is orange and fish fly. Chris Batham talked in circles until Jill was convinced. Chris claimed he wasn't doing anything illegal. He just understood the nuances of insurance billing, and he was working the system legally. He said because he was so good at billing, he was able to bring in more clients and offer more scholarships. Whenever I would try and ask questions, he really spun this whole Robin Hood The insurance companies are screwing everyone over. We're saving lives. The more money we get paid from the insurance company, the more people we can bring in on scholarship. And at that point, I was able to do that. Like with my position, I was bringing people in left and right that were homeless or like that I knew for AA, you know, that needed help. Jill was bringing in new clients regularly, offering them scholarships. And then CRLA would set up insurance policies for those clients, just as they had for Jill. It was that whole greater good thing. Like what we're doing is we're saving lives. Like I went home sleeping so good at night. I'm like, I'm helping so many people, you know, and I still talk to some of those people that I brought in and they have amazing lives. And I was able to do that because of him. Jill is smart. She knew the double billing probably wasn't above board. But she also had a lot of incentive to look the other way. CRLA had become her community, her support system, even her family. Chris and Kirsten, they really became these, like, parental figures. My mom had passed away. My dad was gone in another country, like I had no family. Every Saturday at CRLA was family day. Family members of clients would arrive and participate in group therapy sessions led by Chris Batham. I I went to one family day and it was so depressing, you know, watching all these people show up and then like even people who didn't have family, like they had like a boyfriend or girlfriend or you know, anybody showing up for them. I didn't have anybody to show up for me. And, you know, it was just, it was just kind of painful (laughs) because, you know, I'm not going to go into the depth of my trauma, but it was just painful to see. After that, Jill was allowed to skip family days Instead, Chris let Jill borrow his car and even invited her to go hang out with his family. I was at Chris's house playing with his kids or swimming or taking them to like Sky Zone. He was so good at keeping his relationships compartmentalized with different people. He was like a chameleon. 
But at this point, this is this family that's taking me in when I have nothing and that loyalty. You know, when you tell me a story like that, that he he recognized that, that this was a really uncomfortable thing for you. Then he made a change where he then made it so that you weren't going to be going to these family therapy sessions anymore. Brought me into his family. Brought you into his family. You know, it was like, use this car, go hang out with my family. It's like, how do you read that now? Do you read that as part of him was empathetic and like, I'm going to help Jill? Or do you think that was another manipulation tactic? Honestly, I wish I knew. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And wow. Um, I wasn't, ex- I, I don't even know. I don't know <laughs> because I, I thought it was so genuine. You know, I know a lot of people were really helped by his program, but you know, even one case of abuse, in my opinion, negates no matter who, how good of a person or a human you are, like looking back at everything, I think there was a part of him that genuinely did want to help people. Actually, I don't know. I, I don't even know. Chris Batham and Kirsten Wallace had ways of explaining away all of Jill's concerns. After all, Jill was learning on the job. So something that would have been a big red flag to someone licensed to work at a rehab was easier to ignore for someone like Jill. Chris Batham had saved her life. It would take a lot for her to turn on him. During our conversation, Jill told me something else that surprised me. She said, Chris Batham was having sex with clients, and she knew about it. Jill lived in one of CRLA's sober living homes with other women, and they told her. I had been around a couple girls that were showing text messages between them and bathroom and it was obvious what was going on and I didn't want anything to do with it honestly in AA and 12 step they just put that into your head like nobody's sexual stuff is any of anyone's business and to me it was consensual the people I knew about I knew were consenting and It was obvious he was buying them cars and giving them money and taking them out of the facilities and they would all disappear for a night. Uh, That's when I think he was taking clients to different hotels. The W was one of his spots and uh, another place up in Malibu. Jill confirmed that even as early as 2013, she observed women in her sober living house texting with Chris Batham in a way that was sexual. She also confirmed that he would pick them up and take them out, sometimes going to hotels. I wanted to ask Jill about something else I'd heard, that Chris was giving clients drugs, clients like Mo, or perhaps some of the women that Jill mentioned. So looking back now, do you know if those people that you knew about, were they having a consensual relationship or was he giving them drugs? I wouldn't know because they're passed away. Hmm. Um, I know one of them he was giving drugs and money to, but I didn't find out about the drugs till way, way later. Mm -hmm. He kept that so separate from me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's weird that none of us really talked about it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because everyone who worked there, we were all in our own thing. I was locked up in the insurance offices, you know, other people were working with clients because, like I said, who am I to judge if anyone's drinking or doing drugs or their, their sex life? Like, that's not my place. Even if the interactions were consensual, it's still illegal for a therapist to have sex with their clients. And at the time, Chris was acting as a therapist to all of these women. Jill says Chris was never inappropriate with her. He never came on to her. He was never sexual in any way with her. She saw him as more of a father figure. She revered him as a great businessman. And for a time, she loved working at CRLA. You know, I have this fierce loyalty that has really kicked me a few times in life. Mm -hmm. I become so loyal to people who help me that I don't want to see anything bad. For several years, Chris operated as if he could get away with anything. Perhaps he felt invincible. But he couldn't manipulate everyone. Rebecca Arvizu, who we heard from earlier, met Chris Batham when her son checked into CRLA in 2015. Rebecca, her son, and her son's father attended family days, and they were assigned a therapist. I, I thought those are just like the worst sessions I had ever been in you know, for for therapy, because it seemed like she was trying to be a marriage counselor between, she's a really young girl. And I'm like, what the hell is she trying to get? That's not why we're here. But she would say things that would just get us more pissed at each other. Rebecca felt like the therapist was trying to get Rebecca and her ex back together instead of focusing on their son's recovery. So she started to ask around and one of the other therapists told her something surprising. One of them said, you know your therapist, she's not even licensed. I mean, she's still a student. She's still going to school and she's still, she's she's here getting hours for her license. And I'm like, why the hell do we have to see somebody who's not licensed? I don't want to see her anymore. Rebecca complained to Chris Batham and her family was assigned another therapist. Shockingly, the new therapist also turned out to be unlicensed. I started to get suspicious. Why do they have these people there that are not even licensed? So I started doing my own research at that point, found out CRLA is not licensed. Batham is just a hypnotherapist. He had no uh, licenses or, you know, credentials or anything other than his hypnotherapy license. As a result of trying to report the unlicensed therapists, Rebecca discovered that CRLA was not licensed as a rehab facility. This actually made it difficult to report them. So I tried to file a complaint with the state against them, and they wouldn't take it because this is the odd part. I don't think people know that you can't file a complaint against an unlicensed facility with the state because they're not licensed. You can only file a complaint against a licensed facility if they're not living up to their license. So if you're at an unlicensed place and you paid them all this money and they're not doing, well, then you got to go sue them in court, you know, for breach of contract or whatever. But the states as a regulatory agency are not going to do anything about it. Chris Batham was obtaining licenses to operate sober living houses, not treatment facilities, even though CRLA was operating as a treatment facility. Rebecca was told 
nothing could be done unless she could prove criminal activity. She was able to file complaints against the two unlicensed therapists working at CRLA. Now I'm a whistleblower at this point because now the state was investigating the two therapists and they were pissed when they got their notices that they were being investigated and that I had filed the complaint. Rebecca also filed a report with the Joint Commission, which resulted in a surprise inspection of CRLA. Chris Batham was not happy. And Rebecca couldn't help herself. She emailed Chris to let him know she was the one who had tipped off the Joint Commission. And he sent me this long rambling email um, back about how the gloves were going to come off. What I hear from former staff is they got an investigator to do a background check on me, and but they couldn't find any dirt on me. They were trying to find some dirt on me to try to, you know, to, I don't know, try to maybe extort me or stop me. Eventually, Rebecca decided to file a complaint with the health department as well, reporting that CRLA was overcrowding their sober living houses, which they were. She filed complaints against CRLA in any and every way that she could think of. I mean, I told my insurance at the time, and I told my son's dad, you know, his insurance, too. I told, you know, I I filed complaints with both insurance companies. They didn't do anything. They just kept paying. They just kept paying the claims. But I was just, like, really, you know, surprised through all of this in that, you know, how little help really could get from government officials. <laughs> and how they just, like, looked the other way until things had to get bad and and worse. Things would have to get worse before they could get better. In early 2015, Chris Batham seemed to be coming unhinged. A beloved client, Mo, had passed away, and they were mounting reports against CRLA, which were making Chris paranoid. He had threatened to have Cliff Brodsky murdered, and even threatened the parent of a client, Rebecca Arvizu. The rumors of criminal activity were piling up. But the problem that Rose faced in February of 2015, is that most of what she had were rumors. The rumors were not new to her, but she'd always been able to write them off for one very particular reason. All of the rumors of Chris having sex with clients, of him orchestrating Moe's relapse, they were all connected to one bigger rumor, a rumor that Rose had always found impossible to believe. Him using was crazy, but the reason, again, that I had a hard time, like, believing that he was having sex with clients or abusing them was because it was followed with, and he's doing drugs with them. And that was, like, unbelievable. Rumors had been circulating that Chris Batham was using methamphetamine in the form of crystal meth. His desk was a fucking mess and his clothes were a mess, but so am I. Like, and I'm the most, you know, like nerdy do-gooder ever. And so it didn't correlate. I just thought that that, that that's kind of like his weird ADHD stuff. 
Crystal meth reduces a person's cognitive functioning over time, breaking down the brain's ability to do very basic things, such as retain memories, problem-solve, or understand complex information. Chris Batham was a successful entrepreneur, running family therapy sessions every Saturday, interfacing with hundreds of people a week. Plus, he was surrounded by people who were very familiar with drug use, people who would be hard to trick. This is Danny, a former CRLA client. I'm a guy that's like a very seasoned drug user, you know, like I, I, I'm an addict. Like I, I'm usually, it's like, if you spot it, you got it kind of thing where like you would think that I would like look, see like the little, you know, like the, the dark, like the dirt under the fingernails or like the burn mark somewhere, or, like maybe a pipe would slip out from under the seat or like a bag of, me- you know, like nothing. There was nothing. I'd never seen it with my own two eyes. Because clients at CRLA didn't see any evidence that Chris was doing drugs, they often discounted the rumors as just petty gossip or people creating drama. It reminds me of this thing that Michael Brian Baker told me. I spoke with him because he worked at Chris Batham's previous rehab, Walking Miracles. He was the breath worker who never got paid. Most of my conversation with Michael didn't make it into the podcast, but he's been in the field of recovery for a long time. And he said this thing to me. He said, in every drug and alcohol treatment facility that he's ever worked in, he's witnessed a lot of drama. There was always a certain amount of drama that was going on that became almost a vacuum. It's almost like um, a street fight going on or an accident, passing an accident. It pulls you out of whatever you're doing and you're distracted by these two people fighting or somebody's credit card not going through or a parental visit and an argument, there was always something going on, which which I would say is probably customary in that type of environment. When people are newly sober, it can be a very unpredictable, emotionally taxing time. It can be easy in early sobriety for an addiction to a substance to transfer to an addiction to another person an idea, or even drama. So even though there were a lot of rumors, it was hard for Rose to know what was true and what was just typical drama in a rehab. Rose needed definitive proof. So she started with the rumor that would be easiest to prove. If Chris Batham were using meth, then surely there would be paraphernalia somewhere. Then, on February 12th, 2015, Rose overheard Chris ask a client staff to take his Tesla to get charged. So, uh, one day, he's like, here's your, you know, can you take my car to go get it charged, the Tesla? I was like, okay. And I was like, I think I jumped in, because in my mind, I was like, there's got to be drugs everywhere, you know? Rose realized if the rumor about Chris doing drugs were true, then there would have to be drugs or at least drug paraphernalia in his car. This was her chance to find out. So I took the car and then it was like, you know, like I was in the car for the first time since being with Batham. And I guess I hadn't looked then, but when I was looking, it was just everywhere. Mass? Yeah, you could just see like that all the dirt and chaos wasn't just dirt and chaos, that it was had been like drugs. You were just like, oh my fucking God, like it was all in front of me. Even on like his touch screen, there was like white powder that was like kind of stuck to, you know, it was just everywhere. You were just like, oh my God, it was such a moron. Did you find like a container with meth in it at the time? Anything like that? So there was... <laughs> 
there was this tin, um, but it was under the back seat and the top was off. It, so it was just the bottom. Inside Chris Batham's car was a tin. That tin was filled with small, clear crystals, crystal meth. Rose couldn't believe what she saw. In that moment, she realized this wasn't the first time she had seen that tin full of meth in Chris's car. A few weeks before, she was riding in the Tesla with Chris and a couple of clients. At the time, she wanted to stop and get a soda. And there was just nowhere near a stop in Calabasas. And so um, the kid in front was like, hey, you know, there's a mint, like take a mint. The client picked up the tin off the floor of the Tesla. It wasn't a soda, but maybe it would hold her over until they found somewhere to stop. He handed the mint tin to Rose. And I opened it up and I was like, what is this? And like, what kind is it? And Batham laughed and goes, oh, that's just my secret meth stash or whatever. And I was like, ha And I shut it. Rose held that same tin in her hand now, and it was filled with crystal meth, just as it had been the first time she opened it. And so that was the tin and it was really meth. <laughs> we had all sat there and looked at it. So that's why it was so like, holy shit. Just another layer of something where you're just like so close to the truth and didn't even know it again. Like there's so many times that that happened. Rose had been in that car hundreds of times and she had never seen the drugs, even though they were there, literally right in front of her eyes. Chris's drug use was hiding in plain sight. It was as though he was daring people to discover it, yet no one could see. Until now. Rose couldn't be sure how long Chris Batham had been using, but all of a sudden, things started to click into place. She was starting to see the truth. Unsure of what to do, she made a few phone calls. One was to CRLA director Josh Resnick, also known as Josh Lazy. He was great. He was like, holy shit, okay. Here's the deal. Get in the car and find a uh, trash can because you are a single mom. You cannot be driving around with meth in your fucking car. And then you just come here. And I went there and I got there and yeah, he was like, oh my God. He was shocked. Just, you know, we were shocked. We were just like, holy shit. Rose's world was shattered. The man who she had trusted and looked up to who she had told intimate details about her life to, was not at all who he said he was. And now, Rose would have to figure out what to do about it. Next time on The Opportunist. I remember just sitting there at my desk in the clinic, looking around, and I grabbed a, a trash bag. It was like 12.30, like lunchtime. I grabbed everything. I, um, I made copies on a zip drive and he is terrified he's terrified and he's just like rose the fucking fraud is unreal like you're not like you need to fucking be scared because this is going to be something that they want to protect not only did he take away like like my freedom and then and in so many ways but i felt and like violated me and all these terrible things but he also so stole my sobriety
The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with Pasha Eaton, Natalie Gregory, and Kate Mays. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Our cover art is by Arvin Lee. Special thanks to the entire cast narrative team and to Trent K. Maverick. Do you have a suggestion for the show, an opportunist that you want us to cover? You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. Cast with a K. If you're enjoying The Opportunist, I would love it so much if you would take a moment, go to wherever you listen, and subscribe to the show. Um, it also helps us a lot if you can rate and review the show, specifically on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show, so thank you so, so much.